Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Dunked On. We got a day of games to talk about here, focused mostly on OKC and Houston. So let's uh, get started uh, on this day. We saw the return of Russell Westbrook, and we saw three days off for a game that was initially scheduled for Wednesday. And we also saw that things seem to have changed a little bit in the series. What were your main takeaways? The most important stretch of this game came at the beginning of the third quarter. OKC got out to a deficit with Schroeder off the floor at the beginning of the first quarter, then made their way back, built a lead, and then eventually uh, Houston led by three at the end of the first half, 48 to 45. Neither team scored much offensively. They each missed a ton of shots. And then the Rockets absolutely blitz the thunder though that puts too much of it on the rockets though they did play really well okc also turned the ball over an ungodly amount in those first six minutes and then so it it looks like it's going to be an exciting game in a 2-2 series and then six minutes basically into the second half the game is functionally over because the rockets have a have an 18 17 point lead and dennis schroeder okc's best offensive player so far in that game is ejected yeah, Schroeder was dominant when he first came in, made three of his first four threes, was starting to cool off a, a little bit, but did have 19 points and almost certainly is still going to lead them in scoring. We're recording this with the Rockets up 29 and uh, three minutes left in the game here. So that was a concern, but for OKC, the other concern is the man who is actually going to lead them in shot attempts for this game. Yeah, I mean, the theory behind playing Lou Dort significant minutes is that he is the best player they have to guard James Harden. Now, that is true. Harden also had a wonderful game, which I fear will be overshadowed by everything else that happened in this one. Harden, 31 points, 11 of 15 from the field, 4 of 8 from 3, 5 of 6 from the line, 5 assists, 3 turnovers, and they were dominant offensively. Not dominant offensively, they were good enough offensively in his minutes, but Harden himself was dominant. And so that brings up the, the part of it. So one part of the Lou Dort thing is, okay, he plays well enough on Harden that it justifies him offensively. And that part toned down a little bit in this one. Partially, Harden was great. Dort was maybe a little bit worse. But all also, the Rockets have gotten so much more attuned to how to defend Lou Dort. And at first, that was just leaving him open. But then when Donovan didn't start Schroeder to start the second half, what they kind of tried to counter with was have Lou Dort do the two dribbles and a good decision. And holy crap, did that not work? Yeah, he had a couple of turnovers right at the beginning of the third that led to some Houston fast breaks and runouts. And I mean, it's just OKC in the competitive portion of this game was like around a 70 offensive rating for the whole game. And 
hey, guess what? When Lou Dort has six points on three of 16 from the field, 0 of 9 for three, none of them, I don't even remember one that was even close, by the way. And then he also had the two turnovers and one assist, negative 24 in 23 minutes. There really, there's just no way to score enough. And I appreciate the approach of them telling him, hey, keep shooting, keep shooting. And But his best game from three in this series has been three out of nine. And he sometimes the timing of those is important. Like if you hit your first couple, then you get guarded the rest of the game, even if you're missing. But uh, Lou Dort certainly did not force them to do that. They put James Harden on him. And then James Harden was getting into the lane, mucking things up. I thought that partially because he was guarding Dort, but this is one of the better defensive games I've seen from Harden. They really were not able to attack him successfully the way they had, particularly at the ends of game th- three and four. Um, a lot of it, I think, is about energy for Harden. The three days off, we've noted before that when he comes out of timeouts, he usually looks pretty good. So he looked extremely energetic in this one. And the Rockets also continued to refine their conventional pick and roll game, which really I questioned after game three whether they could do that. They went back to that in game four. It worked pretty well. They just couldn't stop OKC. And then in this game, they had a couple of plays with nice like little slips of the screen by guys like Eric Gordon and Daniel House uh, playing as more traditional pick and roll roll men uh and Harden is a very very good pick and roll player and he's starting to rediscover that also like when they would go under on him in a conventional pick and roll defense he was just hitting that three-pointer finished four of eight on threes so really just a dominant performance from him dominant performance from Houston um but you know the offense wasn't unbelievable in this game like they shot lights out in the third quarter and hit a ton of threes after both teams were like 20 percent on threes in the first but it really was about what they're able to do to the thunder defensively in this game particularly when Schroeder started to cool off or got ejected yeah and a lot of times with reluctant and Dort wasn't exactly a reluctant shooter in this game he was just a bad one and a lot of times we talk about it's not about their shooting percentage it's about the the effects that you see on all of the other possessions and I think that was a significant part of why OKC was about 50 percent in the restricted area during this game also they were not doing great from floater range remember the Rockets don't have amazing rim protection and OKC didn't turn the ball over a ton in the first half but then had that disastrous third quarter where they were throwing it all over the gym giving Houston easier looks offensively because they were getting a lot more in transition and just not facing a set defense as much and then OKC had to face a set Houston defense almost every single time because the Rockets were scoring almost every single time and so yeah it was really a nightmare scenario there were a couple things that OKC did that I liked better in this one they used Dort as a screener and he slipped a couple of those that was something you specifically suggested after game four they used that a couple of times and I thought it worked kind of well but if we're talking in big strokes I think the the thing that has to be really concerning to Oklahoma City about game five is that we wondered if they were going to be able to score enough and yeah if they're hitting their threes it can work reasonably well but I think that this game was a reminder of their limitations and remember while Russell Westbrook came back it's not like he was unbelievable and that that gave he was he was awful yeah I I mean other than I thought defensively he wasn't bad they again like the he was guarding Dorn a lot too when Harden was out of the game and so that plays to his strengths of like not really closing out that much on shooters and saving his energy for offense but uh I, I mean he's he's got a ways to go and work himself back we'll put it that way well yeah and so I want to go through his shot chart 
he missed all four, Russell Westbrook, missed all four of his shots at the rim, made one floater and made a couple yeah. of mid-rangers. He so was, some of those, I don't I don't even remember any of those layups being close, by the way. No, he had a couple that hit backboard and nothing else. And then Westbrook, two of five for mid-rangers. I think he made his first two, so it looked a little bit better. And then he missed some of those in the second half when the Rockets were hitting everything. And then he missed both of, Russell Westbrook missed most of his, both of his three-pointers. So that's how you get a seven-point on 14 shooting possession night for him the shot selection was terrible wasn't as dominant on the defensive glass did have a couple of nice passes you know it wasn't a terrible night and the other important thing for Westbrook is he didn't look great physically but he didn't look terrible either so if you were to game this out theoretically a second round series with the Lakers could start no earlier than Wednesday I think by then he'll probably be okay but for Houston to so thoroughly dominate OKC in the second half of this game I think that's very concerning even if there is one at least easy fix for Billy Donovan but even in that limited Dennis Schroeder time in the second half we saw the limitation of it because they just don't have anybody who can guard James Harden outside of Lou Dort. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the major problem. Like, if they can't get more out of Dort offensively, they're just not going to be able to score enough, regardless of how well Dort is guarding James Harden, particularly because it's not like Game 3 when Dort was just completely shutting him down. Like, he, he was able to get more, and, you know, we'll see how Harden looks after the turnaround uh, after just a, a couple of days off. I mean, the other problem for OKC, and again, a lot of this is because they just weren't darting, guarding Dort, and they would try and pass it to him. You know, Chris Paul started getting going a little bit late in the third, but the game was already out of reach at that point. And he was, you know, and so he can kind of get to his mid-ranger a little bit. And, you know, that's not going to be bothered as much by helping off of Dort. But Shea Gilgis-Alexander uh, was two for eight. It was a throwback to game one for him again, too. He's got to get more shots. I really think that they should be trying to run as much as they can through him, particularly when Schroeder is off the floor. And then Danilo Gallinari has completely disappeared yeah. in this series. I mean, they're not even throwing him the ball at this point. Like his ISO game, again, because Dort is on the floor with him, his ISO game is getting completely shut down. We saw it in one third quarter possession in particular where he tries to ISO and then they bring another guy, whoever's guarding the center, over to the strong side zone. And then whoever's guarding Dort on the backside will just come over and take the center and Gallo just has nowhere to go on these isolations and, and the switching has really taken him out of it they've stopped targeting Harden as much I think they kind of lost the rhythm of what they'd been doing offensively a little bit and then obviously losing Schroeder was a problem but the game was largely over at that point anyway yeah let's let's talk about that situation so what what happened was Tucker was setting a screen and Schroeder was trying to get around the screen and Schroeder's right arm was up and that led to a connection with the groin area of P.J. Tucker, and originally it was called purely as a defensive foul. It was called an illegal screen on Tucker, and Tucker gets immediately into Schroeder's face. And something we talked about, we're doing this game on the NBA cast, we talked about live, is escalation is actually an important part of the flagrant foul criteria, and in this specific case, I think that's the whole reason it got reviewed in the first place. Yeah, that's true, because Schroeder actually got the foul call initially on Tucker, and then Tucker was upset that it was a pretty obvious forearm to the nether regions uh, by Schroeder wasn't looked at and so he came up to him made contact with him from behind uh, with his with his head I thought that Tucker shouldn't have been thrown out Tucker didn't have a technical right like he, he just got a one technical ejection in the end I believe so yes I believe it was, yeah. a, it was a one technical ejection and then a flagrant two for Dennis Schroeder yeah and so to me I thought that 
particularly because you noted this on the cast that when guys don't see the referees as being on their side, they're more likely to be upset and like it'll result in an altercation. But I I thought that reacting that way, I mean, the headbutt, it's like, okay, it's his head, fine. But like, it's not like he, you know, cracked open the guy's head or something. Like he's just came up behind him. I didn't think of it as any different as like a shove or something. So, I mean, I think they just, the game was a little bit out of hand. They wanted to just to have discipline for both players. I didn't well, and, agree with Tucker and, being and ejected. Let's, let's lean on this. You know, we're recording this on Saturday evening. There should not be any suspensions for, for game six from these two guys either. Like they, they, oh, oh God, that, would, that would infuriate me. And yeah, I think a flagrant one technical, like technical one basically would have been totally fine. Like that's a, that's a reasonable interpretation of events. I don't want to go too much into Schroeder's intent, especially when a lot of the replays we saw were slowed down. Things look more intentional when they're slow but it was definitely an arm to the groin and so yeah flagrant one totally fair in that circumstance and it was a reminder of just how shrewder dependent oklahoma city's offenses and he had another very effective game 19 points 6 to 13 from the field downhill driving is the real strength of shooters game and he gets those opportunities against the rockets also hit a couple of threes where he was just in rhythm and there are opportunities to play shooter in this series i think it's a tactical mistake that billy donovan didn't play shooter to start the second half i think it will be a mistake when and I feel like it's a when not an if Donovan does not start Schroeder to start game six but it's it's well, not so, like, so who are you taking who are you taking out of the starting lineup then I I think you roll the dice and just don't play Gallinari oof I mean keep in mind that you want to actually re-sign this guy do they though? like I, I mean just I mean, as are a you, trade I don't, asset I don't think if nothing go, else I don't think you go full Miritich here necessarily um because the problem is Okay, remember we like we we almost lost this thread because it happened so early and OKC came back. They got their butts kicked at the beginning of the game too, and I don't think they have enough of a margin for error to be behind. So Schroeder came in in the first in the first half. Schroeder came in and they were down sixteen to seven, and then they were down you know double digits again, or they were down significantly again in the third quarter. And I don't think they can afford that when their offense is not going to be consistently as good as it was in games three and four, especially. So any, I mean, I think. Well, the, the other question, I mean, yeah. could, the other counter would be maybe they go without Stephen Adams, but the problem there is like Stephen, he did have like basically five offensive rebounds in the first couple minutes, and then had three after that and provided a limited effect. But we've seen what happens when OKC when they don't have Adams or Noel in the floor. Yeah, maybe they can get something offensively, but they have so little help, and that can be a big problem. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if I were going to take anyone out of the starting lineup, it would be Adams or Dort. Uh, and may, maybe the thought is start without Dort, bring in Schroeder, like try to just get off to a better start offensively. Like those, when they've really gotten blown out, it's been that they haven't been able to get going offensively. That's a sound idea. So I, I like that. Uh, go with your best offensive group and, or you can go take Adams off the floor and basically just have Dort be the center and the guy setting all these screens and rolling to the rim. Although even that still is, you know, he's not the same offensive rebounder as Adams. Um, so uh, I think that would be what I would think of and just try to get Schroeder going immediately. Try to get Gilgis Alexander going. I mean, Gilgis Alexander, he they just didn't do a good enough job of getting him the matchup, I thought, particularly against Harden or Covington. You know, a lot of times he's trying to attack against 
you know Eric Gordon who does a great job and so like that's just not the matchup for him and they've got to get more in transition obviously when they're taking the ball out of the net so much or turning it over it made it a lot more difficult to do that but you know there's also there's guys who have a lot of equity with this franchise Gallo and Steven Adams and taking them out of the starting lineup I'm not sure so maybe it will be Dort um you know you can say hey that's maybe and maybe also just for Dort it's like if you start him he's gonna have three wide open threes right at the start of the game and if he misses those then it's like he's useless for the rest of the game right so like maybe you just bring him in off the bench give him a change of look against Harden and let him you know draw up a play for him right when he gets in to get like a layup or two maybe they're not as locked in when some of the bench guys are in there when Dort comes in I said yeah that would probably be I probably would just start with that good I think I think that's a reasonable tact to to try out and also they know that Harden's gonna you know his minutes are pretty solid that he's gonna play basically you know play a significant part of the first quarter so it's not like I don't think they're gonna do any counter programming from from Mike D'Antoni on when Harden's gonna sit or anything like that so yeah I, I could see that as a as a worthwhile gambit and see if you can score enough to kind of keep it going and if not then you're going home yeah anything else you would consider doing if you're either of these teams well something else that we saw I mean during the competitive portion of this game was that having Russell Westbrook back meant that D'Antoni didn't have to lean too heavily on his bench and so I thought that you know Macklemore wasn't as big a part of the rotation I thought House looked fairly good overall during the competitive portion Austin Rivers was Austin Rivers out there and I think that's not as not as pertinent in this series but I think that's extremely important in a potential Lakers series yeah and I think it did help that they didn't have to play Ben McLemore as much with Westbrook back. McLemore has really struggled defensively in this series. They can move House into more of a, a bench role and Austin Rivers, I think he's their best matchup defensively against Schroeder. He and Gordon are, so they should oh, try we, to we should start off with that matchup. We should talk a little bit more about how Eric Gordon looked in this game. I, again, really liked him. Yeah, I mean, and Gordon, he finished 0 for 3 from 3, all of which were like pretty bad shots. But he started just driving, and one of the things that became apparent is this Thunder team really has no rim protection. I thought Westbrook eventually, you know, maybe if he looks better the next game, can take advantage of that as well. But Steven Adams is guarding P.J. Tucker or Jeff Green, who's staying in the corner. Steven Adams basically is not helping off of them, and we saw Harden was 7 of 7 on twos in this game. He really got to the basket beautifully, was finishing pretty explosively. I thought he looked good athletically. Um, and so maybe you would think of switching up a little bit defensively and trying to have your strategy be have Steven Adams protecting the rim a little bit more and then try to have someone X out to the corner. Maybe even the guy that Harden just beat off the dribble, in fact, can get out to the corner and then you force a rotation and you give up an above the break three. I think that's a better option than just letting James Harden go seven of seven from two. And Harden is going to get to the rim. I mean, maybe it's time to start thinking about that strategy of just sitting on Harden's left hand a little bit and forcing him to drive right, which he did a better job of today, by the way, even when he was matched up against Dort. I thought he was finally taking what the defense gave him a little bit more, but uh, maybe that's something that they can consider. Well, uh, but it all really goes back to off. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, and I was going to say, well, I was going to change the subject. I, I wasn't. So while Houston ended the game 17 of, of 38 in the restricted area, their starters did really well. And that's something that has to be really concerning for the, has to be concerning for the Thunder. You know, Westbrook, Westbrook's 0 for 4 aside, you know, PJ, t- uh, uh, Eric Gordon, 7 for 11, Covington, 2 of 3, Harden, 6 of 6, PJ Tucker, 1 
one of one. And it's really hard to survive that because Houston assaulting the rim, even if they're not getting fouled that much, that gives them stability offensively, even if the three-pointers aren't falling. And one of the ways that you can beat Houston with a talent disadvantage is like hoping their three-pointers don't go in, but they didn't have to rely on that as aggressively. And then when they went in, the game was up. Yeah, I'm not sure what else uh, OKC can do to start scoring now. They could shoot better than seven of 45 on threes, and particularly late second, early third. They had a lot of threes that like went in and out, like that were pretty close, like from Shooter yeah. and Chris Paul. And so those guys will play better. Shea, in particular, is going to play better. I mean, Dort is either going to hit some shots or he's going to have to have his minutes reduced even further. Um, and but I, it's, I mean, Houston's strategy has done a great job uh, against Dort, really locking in on him. And yeah, you know what? If Dort goes three for nine, like he did in the last game, like okay, you can live with that a little bit. But if he's not getting guarded and when you throw it to him, he's I mean, what is his true shooting in this game? It's like it's just it's just know. a crying. It's just somebody crying. That's his true shooting. Yeah, six points on sixteen shot attempts. That's uh, that's really really poor. It's like below twenty five percent true shooting. Um, anything else on this series, or should we move on to talking a little bit about? Uh, Bucks Magic uh, and some news. Oh, I, I was going to move on to news and not talk about Bucks Magic, but you could talk about. We could talk about if you want. I mean, very, very briefly. I don't think we need to get into it uh, too much. Just, just at least say what happened. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that in just a second here. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015, and I think that's because. My story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas 
I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing, like their premium slub crew tee, the no BS high rise pant, the slim roughneck pant featured in Giant Magazine issue two. Every American Giant piece is made in America and designed to last no exceptions, and it provides year round comfort. So find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at American Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use that finger code CAPSPACE at checkout. Please remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time here on the program. That's 20% off your first order at American Giant.com. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know you came from us. So a reminder, of course, that as of September 8th, Dunked On will be subscription only four days a week. And then you also will get the fifth episode per week commercial free if you sign up uh, for Dunked On Prime. Right now, up until September 8th, we have founding memberships, which are the lowest price we are ever going to offer for a year membership. You get a discount off the monthly price and you get a discount off the normal year membership as well. And you get locked in at that price forever as long as you want to renew it what's more if you sign up now you can get early release podcasts or special little one-offs i did one with anthony slater last week talking about dame Lillard and steph curry danny and i did an early release of our outlooks on the boston toronto and milwaukee miami series earlier today you could have gotten that early uh if you wanted to so i encourage you to check it out the link is in the show notes dunkedon.supportingcast.fm and there's also a letter talking about why we were going subscription pinned to the top of my profile and an faq that is linked in that letter as well if you have any technical questions uh, about what you're getting or how it works in your podcast player or any of that we got it all set up for you yeah we'll talk briefly about this milwaukee orlando game and series here's where here's what i want to say during the 28 minutes that Giannis played in this game milwaukee had a plus 36.7 net rating but he only played 28 minutes and yeah the but the bench didn't didn't look great in some of that and that's that's for me why i didn't read as much in this yes it was close to an extent in in the middle of the fourth quarter and a nice comeback by orlando they were more competitive in the series than i expected give them full credit but you know this was this was this wasn't you know the best version of the bucks playing 35 minutes a game and so that's what it was. I, I mean, for a team that won their last four games in this series by 15, 14, 15, and 14 points, there definitely is a lot of crapping on the box. And yeah, they broke away late. Actually, the Magic got within three in this game and Giannis was in foul trouble. It looked like it might get close. And then Marvin Williams actually restored order with two big three-pointers and drawing a charge to get it back to double digits before Giannis even came back in. But, you know, still some of those old bugaboos, the Giannis foul trouble, for example, they had a, a stretch where they got were two out of 14 on threes in the second half and the magic started hitting theirs and so you know the bucks can be a little bit streaky we worry definitely about their offense not looking unbelievable and we'll talk more about that later on in that series preview against miami let's hit some news though here and i think where we should start is with the firing of nate mcmillan in indiana despite the fact that he had had a extension but it always seemed like that was kind of a bs extension of just 
like, all right, we'll stick with you for one more year because what else are we going to do? And in fact, even McMillan in an interview after he was fired confirmed that that extension happened in part because his contract was just up on at the end of June and they really had no way to force him to coach these playoffs. So I think maybe he partially drove a bargain jay michaels reporting was they intended to keep him for next year and then this series was so bad in terms of the lack of adjustments and all the iso ball and so a lot of the things we talked about at the beginning of the series that he took until game three to implement uh so he is out now any general thoughts on that it is a fascinating test of an idea that i've posited many times on this show and on the live show that if a coach is not in that clear value add and there isn't necessarily a line of whether that's the six best or the 10 best or the 15 best that i think teams should cycle through more aggressively and mcmillan is challenging there because i i think that he pushes on two different parts of that one I think that the overall, the Pacers have defended better than you would expect given their talent level. Now, this year, there was some noise in there about there was some opponent shooting luck. I'm I'm a firm believer that they outperformed their talent level and they also got lucky. Both those things can be can be simultaneously true. But so so then you have this part. So it's like, well, is Nate McMillan a value add? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's a value add in the regular season and not in the playoffs. But then the other part of that is like, there's always this idea of, well, then where do you go from that? Not every replacement is going to be Dwayne Casey for Nick Nurse, where Nick Nurse ended up becoming both of our opinion of the best coach in the league the just christened coach of the year and so there is a so I, I'm kind of split on this where it's like I think that moving non-premium coaches moving off of them is generally a good idea while acknowledging that there is a distinct chance if not probability that the Pacers next coach is worse than Nate McMillan yeah I, I think that's quite possible uh, now generally if you go back at the history of teams that fire coaches very rarely would I say do they regret it like you really could probably count on one hand the number of teams firing a coach that are like ah oh, man we really shouldn't have done that we regret that uh if it over the last 10 yeah, years like or those, so I, that, that narrow group of value-add coaches almost never have a second job right uh, or if they do it's the kind of thing where it's like all right it's just the end of you know it's or a it's, Doc Rivers type of thing right yeah yeah, yeah where like they're just the, in a rebuilding standpoint well, or whatever yeah it's complicated but yeah and so I that's a really good point and I think that's a, a fair way of thinking about it and with the Pacers in particular like we I don't know where they're going in terms of their roster I I was you know the whether the Turner Sabonis pairing is going to stick around long term we didn't get to see it but the other reason this is so striking is you and I, I think both agree that Nate McMillan is better in the regular season than the playoffs and so I in some ways thought that he was such a such a poetically perfect fit with the MO of the Indiana Pacers which was let's get into the playoffs and yeah we're probably <laughs> not going to do much in the playoffs so it kind of worked you know that they that that i don't think that a you know unless we're talking one of those top five six coaches in the league that somebody like that is going to do it because their talent level just isn't high like they i wouldn't have picked them even if let's say sabonis was healthy maybe yeah maybe they can get out of the four or five series and then get crushed by the bucks but they're you know they're not going to be better than the fourth best most talented team in the eastern conference any of the next couple years yeah now maybe a victor oladipo where the guy we saw in 1718 that might be different but i fear that guy uh, may no longer be with us uh, and a few more things re- reacting to what you said i made those jokes uh, about mcmillan and you know the miles turn on, on the last show miles turn being like you know losing the first round sucks like no that's actually what the the team is trying to do but i said that tongue-in-cheek and in fact it was the owner herb simon apparently who drove this change kevin pritchard is uh pretty loyal to mcmillan he worked with him of course uh, back when they were both uh, in portland last decade and 
the other risk that you're taking here is look at how much better players have gotten when they've come to indiana you could say thaddeus young boyan bogdanovich tj warren justin holiday guys who you know were not great defenders and really became very very good defenders gave much more effort wise on defense now remember of course we haven't heard this discussed right now but the party line back when they fired frank vogel was oh it doesn't matter you know frank vogel's not the what makes our defense really good it's dan burke the assistant and so now is dan burke going to stick around is he going to be the guy who's really pushing that again you know in the eyes of the organization that's an interesting question um there was also talk in some of the reporting by jay michael that some of the big players on the team like weren't necessarily that into mcmillan and you know i always kind of wonder at that of of who who that might be when you got to this place and you've had some of the best years of your career and now you don't like the coach like that's always sometimes people uh, and players don't necessarily know what's good for them in that regard but in the end i am on board with them moving on for him i think that's they needed to get more modern offensively uh and the other reporting from jay michael was that nate mcmillan just wasn't willing to change like he he they approached him about some of these issues he wasn't willing to address them. And when that's the case, you know, you're kind of digging your own grave a little bit as a coach at, at that point. So we'll see. I think uh, he'll probably get another chance at some point, but clearly he had underperformed in the playoffs pretty much every single series that he's been in. We've had major problems with what he's doing. So uh, this move makes sense. And now rumors about his replacement supposedly they had interest it has been bouncing around that they're interested in mike d'antoni i think d'antoni would be a wonderful coach particularly if they can keep dan burke to do the defense but it doesn't seem like you know they got to pay mcmillan for next year mike d'antoni is going to want at least a three-year deal even at i think he'll be 70 by the time he starts coaching for his next team and he's going to want five to seven million dollars a year and is are the indiana pacers going to pay that you know they've never really got after a, a coach like that so i i'm skeptical for those reasons even though i do think it would be a very solid fit for them yeah that's an interesting point let's move on unfortunately a lot of the other news is injury news that totally changes series we can start with dallas christoph porzingis has a he's been dealing with a meniscus tear in his right knee um he is out for the remainder of this series i don't know if he would be, theoretically be available for a second round series should yeah. they get they're their- talking about like it could happen if yeah. they make it to the second if they round. make it to the second round uh that fundamentally changes it yes it is true that the dallas mavericks came back and, and they they had that super memorable game four win without porzingis and they also had a you know but i don't think that's where this series is going overall that it's, it's going to be a real challenge for them yeah the clippers can close it out uh, tomorrow i will be doing a solo nba cast uh, for that game now the greater concern here i mean i think they're making the right decision if he had this meniscus tear in game one and i guess it's just been like a swelling pain management thing i don't know whether that's at all related to that knee soreness that caused him to miss 10 games back in the january time frame but uh brian stutterer who's a, an injury expert could follow uh, on twitter as a an injury based youtube page he said he rewatched all of game one and he couldn't see any sort of an acute issue and i think the plan is for him to try to avoid surgery and just rehab it it doesn't seem like that ever works in my recollection when you have a meniscus tear you know like uh, the most recent example is al farouk Aminu tried to rehab his it didn't work and then he ended up had to have a surgery and then we don't know what kind of a surgery it would be for porzingis would it be the repair or would it be like the trim this seems like a small tear if they're talking about him playing on it so I'm guessing it probably would just be the trim rather than a, the repair and he could be back 
for the start of next season the repair would be you know a four to six month type of thing um but you know this is part of why the new york knicks moved on from porzingis although there are many other issues there as well and you know this will now be i think every single year that he's played some of the years they're tanking but he has not finished the season i think in any of the last like four four years and and so that's a that's a concern and intensely tall players deal with a lot of lower body injuries and it doesn't have to be a chronic condition it can just be a lot of things that happen at various points in their career the other big injury is in portland where damian lillard had had an MRI. It looks like a right knee sprain. He he left the bubble. He will not be back. And the Blazers were recording this before the end of their game, but they're they're dead in the water. Whether it comes whether it comes on Saturday, it comes on Monday. It doesn't really matter without without Lillard available. Yeah, hopefully it's not something that's going to require surgery from him being talked about as a knee sprain. It hasn't, I haven't really said, I think they call it a lateral knee sprain. So that could be the LCL. It could be some other structures in that area. But, you know, definitely they he had significant swelling to the point where he couldn't extend his leg. So it appeared that's really the first significant injury I can recall Lillard having to a, a joint. I mean, he's had like, you know, some groin pulls and stuff like that. But um, also in San Antonio, Derek White suffered a... A foot injury in the bubble and he actually had surgery i think it was his left index toe not really much word on what the prognosis is there it was a dislocated toe actually on his left foot well no official timetable but doesn't sound like something that's going to prevent him from playing yeah at the start of we'll next just season. saying that he's expected to be ready for the start of next season oh good okay and then i guess we can finish up here with a report by NBC Sports Washington that the Hawks and Knicks are among several teams with cap room expected to pursue Davis Bertans in free agency, but the Wizards are motivated to keep him. And uh, Danny, let's mark it down because literally every significant free agent will be attached to the Hawks and the Knicks by some sort of rumor likely spread by their agent uh, in an effort to drum up the market, whether those teams are actually truly interested or not and we'll we'll see when some hornets and pistons get sprinkled in too yeah there are not many teams that can be rumored for this because only i i I have it tentatively at five teams that will have more than the mid-level except available which is insane yeah now the hawks and the knicks seem the most likely to me to really try and actually get better for next year and bertans would certainly be extremely useful for the hawks offensively uh because their spot up three-point shooting was atrocious this year one of their big problems but we'll see long way to go the bertans by not trading him the wizards you know he isn't going to be a bench guy there you know maybe a team that wants to offer him a starting role would uh have a greater appeal i know the wizards are going to want to keep him they want to have bradley beal and john wall and berton together i mean they should be very good offensively with those three guys out there thomas bryant's good offensive center too they'll never stop anyone but you know with uh with john wall as their best rim protector probably probably not going to work that well but uh You'd expect that Bertans is one of the few free agents that's going to be able to drum up a bidding war above the mid-level exception, as you noted there. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. 
Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Let's talk about Toronto and Boston. This is a fascinating series. We've been looking forward to this for, I don't know, six months or so now when it became clear. And a a reminder, you can get this early, immediately upon recording. We release this to Dunked On Prime subscribers, dunkedon.supportingcast.fm. You can sign up for another week or so, basically, at that special price and be grandfathered in at that uh, forever before the monthly subscriptions become available on September 8th. So let's talk about this series. And I think the number one issue to me is whether Toronto is going to be able to score well enough against Boston. Yeah, that that is a great place to to start. One of the uh, key questions in in this series is that both of these teams are excellent in half-court defense. Toronto was was actually number one in the league, uh, and opponents had an 88-8 offensive rating in the half-court, but Boston wasn't far behind them. 91-6 was good enough for fourth in the NBA. But then one of the big differences between them is that Boston had a more successful half-court offense than Toronto did and you brought up the idea that and this is something we've talked about really all season with the Raptors is that they have they have ways that they can bog down they're great at getting into transition but when they can't then it relies a lot on Siakam and Lowry and Van Vliet as creators which isn't the best part of their games well and particularly I think the regression of Pascal Siakam from those first couple of months or so and he suffered an injury, missed a, about a month as well, a groin issue. But he hasn't quite been the same guy. Even in, I thought he had a very favorable matchup against the Nets. And really, despite the fact that Toronto dominated that series, as they should have, Siakam really was not able to bring that much to bear in the half court as a creator. And then you look at some of the limitations of Lowry and Van Vliet. Yeah, those guys love to drive the ball, but they're generally looking to drive and kick. They've got shooting at all positions which is nice you know maybe og ananobi could be a little bit wonky there we'll see you know but he statistically shot it pretty well um you know they've got ibaka as a stretch five off the bench so they do have shooting they do have passing they do have decision making everywhere on the court but they don't necessarily just have that guy who's going to beat his man and force help in a more structured playoff environment and 
So yes, once they get that initial opening, they are maybe the best in the league at pinging the ball around, great ball movement, Gasol, instant decisions up at the top, although he's going to have to actually shoot some shots, I think, in this series. But it's getting that initial advantage where I really wonder uh, about how they're going to attack because Lowry is not the greatest finisher anymore. Van Fleet has gotten better in that area, but he's still not the greatest finisher. And a lot is really going to fall on Siakam's shoulders and whether he can beat his individual matchup well enough on those spin moves and those attacks where he just kind of meanders into the lane and goes up for a hook shot or a short floater is that going to be enough can he score efficiently enough on those plays that they have to bring help I don't think that he can at this point in his career yeah it is a real challenge and also remember that Boston while they don't have they have they have a lot of capable wing defenders. They don't necessarily have guys that you and I love on elite wing creators. You know the Kawhis and the Lebrons of the world. I don't put Siakam in that category. I don't think that he has yeah. established himself there. And so, well, well of, who do you think they who do you think they put on Siakam? I think they'll start with. I think they'll probably start with Brown and to have Tatum in that capacity. They could also. I mean, Marcus Smart is starting now, so you could also they could also go there and use use kind of some strength. Yeah. That could be an approach as well. Um, I think may, actually maybe they use Smart. I don't maybe the intention wasn't to go that direction but now that he's starting because then you get Tatum as a help defender which is what he does best and that could be that could be potentially useful for the Celtics but yeah they have a they have a lot of guys and theoretically Ojale can play a role in this series as well you know not a perfect player but somebody who they can they can throw on that assignment and also the Raptors have a lot of other capable players but I I don't think of you know like some of their players as being oh man if we shade a little help not necessarily like leave a guy open I think that that Toronto does a good job of not playing those guys, but shading and okay, if we shade a little bit, they're not going to kill us. And I think that Boston, you know, both of these defenses can do a really good job adapting both these coaches too. And I think that could end up hurting the Raptors is they have a lot of like, kind of like low level, but not screaming out loud threats. So we might want to try and reverse engineer this of where are they going to put Kemba Walker? Do they want to put him on Lowry or Van Vliet? Maybe you start the series that way. But I do expect at some point he ends up getting hidden on Ananobi. And if that's the case, then probably Tatum ends up being the guy in the base lineups guarding Siaka. Maybe that's how they go by the end of games because Smart and Jalen Brown, those are your best guys getting over screens Tatum to me isn't quite as good at that you mentioned he's better as a health defender but he also you know guarded Kawhi at the end of that Clippers game uh, to some acclaim he's definitely gotten a lot stronger and a lot better uh, than he was a couple of years ago when you could kind of just go right through him so maybe he ends up on Siakam if only because Brown and Smart are better matchups on Van Vliet and Lowry or you put Tatum on Ananobi and let him play that help role that you were talking about and then the guys off the bench Grant Williams Semi Ojale I think those guys you know Williams can get into some foul trouble but I think those guys can do a decent job throughout the game when they don't have all of their starters on the floor of keeping up with Siakam slowing him down reasonably well not at least getting overpowered um now the other thing I'll point to when Toronto has the ball is I think this is going to would be a bad series for Ennis Cantor. Toronto runs a lot of pick and roll and they have guys who can pull up off the pick and roll from three. And that's going to be an issue for Cantor in particular. This is one where there's nowhere really to hide him. You know, Ibaka on the second unit having to guard him in a pick and pop or spacing out to three. That could be an issue. Um, you know, his 
cancer's lack of rim protection also the fact that nurse will be merciless in exploiting him in the way that some other coaches aren't so i think we may see some lineups with grant williams as the backup center i think robert williams they'll try him they might even do some switching with him uh but you know we'll see whether he can avoid making mistakes because that's that is the biggest thing against toronto is you have to avoid mistakes defensively because they will kill those right like if you overhelp on a van vliet or a lowry when they're not really in position to do anything and they're just snaking under the basket but you double team them and then they start the churn going with the driving kicks you know or if you commit dumb fouls on lowry you know he's right up there with chris paul of the just driving to just draw a foul and that's it not even trying to score you know or dumb loose ball fouls when you're in the bonus where lowry if he feels any contact he'll just let himself fall down going for a loose ball and that's two free throws so i think like toronto's gonna have to try to scrape out points like that and boston does have some guys particularly off the bench who are young and inexperienced and might fall for that kind of crap Yeah, that's a really great point. And something that I want to keep an eye on, you brought up Canner. I think that's going to be a potential inflection point in the series is that is the the glass on each side of the floor. So we'll start with when Boston is offensive rebounding. Boston was actually a prolific offensive rebounding team, fifth in the league in offensive rebound percentage. And the Raptors Raptors were not a particularly great defensive rebounding team. That's not the the focus of, you know, they're they're great at a lot of things. That's there. They were bottom 10, but, you know, I don't consider it a huge weakness. I think they'll be better in the playoffs. I don't think Boston is going to have as much of an advantage there because of personnel. I think that they will, you know, they'll be opportunistic, but I don't think, especially when you consider how great Toronto is in transition, I wonder how much of an advantage Boston can and will create. Yeah, well, I mean, Boston, however, is an awesome transition defense. The best in the league, they've got a lot. Now, it's not quite the same as you're going against LeBron James or Giannis Antetokounmpo or Ben Simmons, although Siakam does provide a little bit of that bigger guy grab-and-go element where you really got to load to him. Uh, But they are an excellent transition defense. They allow the lowest points per play in transition in the NBA, uh, the fifth lowest transition frequency in the NBA, and overall number one by cleaning the glasses metric in points added in transition by opponents they allowed only 1.3 points added in transition compared to normal half court possessions which is by far number one in the lead so that's 1.3 the worst in the nba was atlanta at 4.4 <laughs> points plus allowed in transition per game so and then that was borne out in the regular season meetings two of which siakam did not play in but overall and we saw this in the bubble meeting which a lot of people thought was predictive of toronto being so reliant on their half court offense or i'm sorry their transition offense and if you look at how reliant toronto is they were number two in the nba in points plus per possession in transition offense and then in half court not that great 16th in the nba and half court offense this year so if you keep them out of transition and then you also can just avoid falling and avoid making mistakes and really make them beat you in the half court by just scoring over you without fouling i don't know that toronto is capable of doing that against this boston team it will also be interesting to see on the other end of the floor the raptors haven't been a particularly aggressive offensive rebounding team a defensive rebounding can be a limitation for the celtics at times it kind of depends on what personnel they're playing at that given moment but i don't see the raptors pushing it too hard there maybe they use some of the they 
They they have, again, opportunistic, have some go guys. So I, I think that Boston will create maybe a little bit less of an advantage on the offensive glass, but also they're not going to get exploited as much on the defensive glass, which is potentially important because that's actually one of the weak points there, that and fouling, which the Raptors, you know, they, they generate they generate free throws to be sure, but I'm not sure they're going to generate a ton of them against the Celtics. Other in the starting lineups, maybe in some of the backup lineups when you get into Grant Williams and maybe Robert Williams and Canner, they could do it. Yeah, and the loss of Gordon Hayward is big. It looks like Kyle Lowry with that ankle sprain slash foot issue. He practiced today, Saturday, so should be good to go. Hopefully, we'll see whether he's limited or not. Um, yeah, I do think a lot of this is going to be determined in the bench minutes. I like Toronto's depth more. Another thing I'll point to as well is. Nick Nurse has no compunctions about playing guys a crap ton of minutes. And, you know, Lowry, Van Vliet, I mean, those guys will be playing 42 minutes a game in this series almost certainly because those are the two guys that they don't really have a replacement for and they don't have any kind of a backup point guard. So Lowry and Van Vliet basically have to back up each other, but they also start. So those guys are going to play a ton of minutes. Do you imagine Siakam is going to play a ton of minutes as well? They've got more versatility at center and in some of the wing spots as well. But you imagine Ananobi is also going to need to play a lot because he's going to have to match up against Tatum. Uh, Whereas the Celtics... Number one, they don't have as good a depth as Toronto, at least as far as just a straight eight-man rotation. I mean, they really, to me, only had only their five starters are guys that you're really trusting a ton right now. And then it's kind of mix and match. It seems has done a good job with that. He did that in the first round, but this is a, a different animal, obviously, that they're playing. And then he's not going to play these guys many minutes, right? Like Kemba Walker is around 35 minutes in the first round. Are they going to feel comfortable ramping him up with this knee issue? I, early in the series, I don't think they would. If it gets desperate, towards the end of the series then i could see that happening um let's talk a little bit more about some of the toronto defensive matchups uh, against boston though sure so i think that guarding tatum you know basically guarding tatum and then being on ball when it's kemba those are important and the raptors can do both of those exceedingly well they have Ananobi, you and i both love him as an isolation defender and then if they want to throw siakam in those assignments they can they can also use siakam and other things and then they can i mean i think van vliet would probably be my my primary assignment on Kemba Walker I think he can do a very good job navigating what they need ideally avoiding fouls and then you have Kyle Lowry handling the other spots and I don't think that especially in half court sets that smart or or brown or however however Boston wants to run that or however each of these teams does is really going to, to cause them that much of trouble so I think that in base alignments the Raptors have excellent personnel to slow down the Celtics. Now, if Jason Tatum is drilling step backs over everybody, it doesn't matter as much. And then also, they have Tor- Toronto's versatility at the big man spots could be very useful against Boston. Whether whatever kind of whatever scheme Nurse wants to run at that given moment, sometimes Marcus Sol will be better because they can protect the rim, and then Serge Ibaka moves better. So maybe you want to use him in other circumstances too. And that's something I really like about the Raptors. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely fascinating because this Boston team to me is, of course, it's to me. I'm the one talking. Uh, But they are close to, but I would put them behind the Mavs and the Clippers, but I'd say they're probably the third best offense in the playoffs. We'll see how Houston looks now that, that Westbrook is back since we're recording this during the day. But the two things that they do that completely killed the Sixers, even though Boston didn't have the greatest offensive performance against the Sixers, was the three-point shooting off the bounce of Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum. And what is the strategic response to that going to be? We've seen the Raptors did a pretty decent job on Stephen Curry we in the 
finals last year we wondered whether Gasol would have the mobility to get out on the floor and deal with some of those high pick and rolls and he did and he's actually even thinner now than he was back then he looks really good really spry defensively and Ibaka has pretty decent mobility for a big as well they also have the option of going with Siakam at center and switching everything I think that that's something that they could try Kyle Lowry has actually gotten a lot of time on Jason Tatum, although part of that was because of some of the absences that Toronto had. I'm sure they're going to try and help off of Marcus Smart and make Marcus Smart prove that he can beat them with three-pointers. If Daniel Tice wants to shoot open threes from above the break, I think they'll probably give him that shot until he proves that, that he can make it as well. But really, that high pick and roll Kemba Walker is one of the best in the NBA at setting up screens, getting himself open. Um, and then the other thing that I think boston has i think this series is gonna be an absolute rock fight oh yeah uh in terms of just i think neither team is gonna score particularly well but the one thing that boston has particularly at the end of games that toronto doesn't is walker and jason tatum can create pretty decent looks mid-range jumpers at the end of the clock uh you know they also have brown as the secondary scorer who can attack quickly off the dribble when you reverse the ball to him. And so I think, yeah, it's not the most efficient offense in the world for mid-rangers, but they have two of the best mid-range shooters in the league in terms of being able to get open for those shots. And so just, I think there'll be times in this series where even getting any kind of a decent shot at all is difficult. And so having that advantage, even if it's not a shot that you want the foundation of your offense to be in a normal series, Boston has a better ability to generate a shot, even if they're not amazing shots, than Toronto does. So uh, that's where I see a little bit of Boston's advantage here as well with Tatum and with Walker on those sorts of plays. Something I think is interesting is that the Raptors, and again, there are a lot of sample size issues here. We're, we're not talking, we're talking about a, basically 130 minutes, 130, 140 for each of these teams. Toronto's clutch offense, 120 offensive rating, 100 defensive rating, better than I would have anticipated. I think some of that is also that their defense has been so great in clutch situations that it's making life easier on their offense, the feedback loops I talk about so much. And Boston's 113, nothing, nothing wrong there, but surprisingly above the, above the Raptors are below the Raptors, sorry. And I, I think that Norman Powell could end up having a really important part of the series just as a potential catalyst when the other things aren't working. But Boston has the resources to slow him down too. It's just going to be when they when they play Powell with some of those other options, prioritization is going to be a little bit different for the Celtics. And I'm interested in that. I think there could be games in the series where Powell closes just because they need somebody else to give them some juice. And yeah. I, I'm interested in how all that's going to fare. And the idea that you brought up, which I think is so fascinating in this series now with Gordon Hayward being out, is Brad Stevens doesn't have as much versatility as per, from a personnel perspective. They can do different schemes. They can do different approaches. But we know who his best five guys are. And can Nick Nurse wield that to his advantage? Because they have more options. They have more ways they can go, both tactically and personnel-wise. And I don't know, because Boston's five is damn good. And there, there are only so many things that you can do. And that's why I think Powell might end up being an important part of it, is basically the idea of, yeah, we're, we're not going to we're not gonna be able to stop everything, but we can stop you enough. And then we need somebody else to give us a little bit of offense. I think that could very well be the case, depending on how OG is playing and how various other things are going. And so, yeah, I think this could end up being a Norm Powell series. Yeah, and whether he replaces one of the centers or he replaces Ananobi in that closing lineup uh, will be very interesting I mean I maybe we'll see Toronto going small in part just because they can't really score right as well and they just need something to juice the offense uh, as you mentioned and yeah for Brad Wanamaker had a big series against Philly he's going to be asked to make open shots as well 
He's a, a tough defensive guard. His matchup uh, to steal some minutes on Lowry and Van Vliet will be important also. And then, you know, Robert Williams, Grant Williams, Semi Ojale, I mean, Romeo Langford. I, I, I will say this, at least yeah. one game, but probably closer to two or three in this series will be swung by whether those Raptors second unit guys commit a too many fouls at the beginning of the second or fourth quarter. Like there's going to be a situation where they, they commit too many the, fouls. You mean the, the Boston? Boston's the Boston's, guys, yeah, sorry, right? Boston's guys. Because that will get Toronto into the bonus, then Kyle Lowry can do some of his ticky-tack stuff to get free throws, and Toronto's offense will look a lot better. I think that will end up being really important at times. But Boston, usually, I think they'll stay disciplined enough, especially giving more minutes to their best guys. I don't think that the fouling will be as much of a challenge as it was at times in the regular season. Prediction? When Gordon Hayward got hurt, I was leaning towards the Raptors, and they did very little in the series against the Nets to dissuade me from that. However, I still think there are some big structural advantages you brought up. I like that you started with half-court offense. And if this series is a rock fight, which I think it will be, and it comes down to those who can get who can generate a shot in late-game situations, and it, whether these teams can get back in transition, I think both teams can get back in transition, and I think the Celtics can generate better shots. So I'm going to go Celtics in seven. Yeah, that's going to be it as well, but I absolutely could see the Raptors winning this series. I could see, you know, Nick Nurse breaking out like a triangle in two with the two on Tatum and Walker. I mean, there could be all sorts of crazy stuff going on in this series, so, and I can't wait. I don't know if you heard it, but Seth had an interesting theory. We did Real Jam Radio together over a week ago, and he talked about the his theory because we knew the series was coming, that he thinks it might be a seven game, that it might be a long series where some of the games aren't cold, where like a lot of the games aren't close. Like one team just gets out in front and the other team just can't come back. I think that's an interesting theory. It could very well be right, but I, I'm leaning more towards the rock fight theory that neither team generates enough offense to really blow them out, maybe more than once or twice. But it is an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, I do think if... if Yeah, I don't think Toronto can score well enough to blow out the Celtics, but we have seen the Celtics blow out Toronto before. So I'm, I, I do think that that's, that's something that also leans in favor of the Celtics. Agreed. That's, that's a part of why I'm picking them in the series is that I, I think that the Raptors games, the Raptors wins will be close and the Boston wins don't have to be. And generally when I think that way, I'm going to pick the team that can, that has more blowout potential. Yeah, this Raptors team is almost, they're almost like the new Spurs, right? Like where it's just like, you can never count them out. They're so smart. They're so veteran. Like that really is, they've kind of taken on that mantle with all these like smart vets that they have, how they play the right way. They can do so much. They have a great defensively. I, I mean, I honestly, I think they have a better playoff coach than Greg Popovich, frankly. Um, not an overall better coach, but a better playoff coach in terms of the adjustments that he's willing to make pop. Did, did not do a lot of like radical stuff in the playoffs over the years, perhaps to his detriment. Let's talk a little Milwaukee and Miami. The Milwaukee-Orlando game hasn't happened yet. I'm going to come with the assumption here that Milwaukee is going to win that and that nobody gets injured. Hopefully this entire segment won't be obviated. But Hollinger did his Miami and Milwaukee preview already. So <laughs> I think we, we can do it too. Um, where do you want to start on this one? Something that I think is, is really interesting between these two teams is that Miami ended up eighth in the league in the regular season in offense. And a big part of that was that they got to the free throw line in absolute ton. They actually had the second highest free throw rate uh, per 100 field goal attempts per clean the glass in the entire league. But that's something that Milwaukee has as a real strength. And so Jimmy Butler, one of the preeminent BS foul drawers in the entire league, not necessarily saying he's the best, saying he tries, tries it the most. 
and no, he's one of the best. I'll, I'll give it to him. Okay, I, I'm not. I'm not quite there yet, but I could be. I could. I mean, he's 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 top ten. We'll put it that. Oh, way. he's top ten. Yeah, I was I was thinking more is he like top five or something like that. Yeah, I think if you're in the top ten, you can be one of the preeminent. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'm interested in that and, and and whether the fouling gets there. But then the other part is you and I have focused a lot over the course of this year about the broad concept of Milwaukee's defense giving up three point shots and Miami doesn't necessarily do it in the same way as everybody else they don't do as as much off the dribble but they made 38.6 percent of their threes this year that tied with Utah for the absolute best in the NBA and so I think the most important question in terms of who actually wins this series is which threes does Milwaukee concede and do they go in yeah I think uh, that's a a great point and you know are we going to see more of Kelly Olenek as a stretch big in this series you know Jay Crowder who starts at the four I imagine he's going to have all the threes he can eat certainly Andre Iguodala is going to have all the threes he can eat the bigger question perhaps becomes the three guys that you're really worried about shooting threes on the heat are Dragic, Hero, and Duncan Robinson and so and maybe Kelly Olenek if he plays I don't know how much he's going to play but I think uh how are they going to is my or is Milwaukee going to deal with Duncan Robinson in particular coming off of those screens is that going to break this defense particularly when and we saw a little bit with Milwaukee having some struggles more with Vucevic in the last round uh but it's Bam Adebayo and the handoff game with Duncan Robinson stresses out your bigs in similar fashion because that handoff game is one of the foundations of their offense particularly at the beginning of the first and third quarter and so if you have Bam Adebayo hand off to Duncan Robinson coming out of the corner going to his right is Brooke Lopez going to be there are they going to put someone are they going to put Giannis on Bam and are there, and maybe they can switch that or just use his overall mobility and then Brooke Lopez is going to hang out on Jay Crowder or Andre Iguodala would they just switch that are they going to put Eric Bledsoe on Duncan Robinson and just say hey Eric Bledsoe you're an amazing defensive player it's just your job to get through all these screens can you do that and just run Duncan Robinson off the line and we'll just everyone else is going to hang back they might start off trying that and we'll see what happens with Duncan Robinson and then if Eric Bledsoe is going to be on him then they're going to go Wes Matthews on Goran Dragic I kind of like the idea of having a little more size on Goran Dragic because he's going to try to meander into the lane I do think that the whole Bucks rim protection thing won't bother Dragic quite as much because it's when you have these guys you know you're Russell Westbrook types you just like headlong as fast as you can into a bunch of bodies at the rim like that's where the Bucks excel Dragic is always under control he can kind of stop turn around for a you know an eight foot turnaround over a guy who's smaller than him um that's always fascinating to to see where instead of he's not going to try and get all the way to the rim and just slam into the body of brooke lopez on a verticality yeah, play the analogy i would make is why we've seen chris paul be able to make hay against rudy gobert in the jazz is that he's not trying to do what they're taking away yeah and I mean, also, that could be a fascinating matchup between Dragic and Bledsoe, former teammates in Phoenix all those years ago. And both of them seem to chaff at being, chafe, I should say, of being on the same team and both being point guards, even when they were starting together in the backcourt. So that'll be interesting if they match up uh, as well. I think I probably would start, though, with Bledsoe on Robinson and Wes Matthews on Dragic 
and kind of see how that goes um oh what, what else sticks out to you uh, for miami's offense? i mean i think butler though i do worry about his ability to do much in this series i think maybe he can draw a few fouls on chris middleton out on the perimeter but he's just not going to be able to finish at the rim at all and so maybe the thought is well jimmy butler he wants to kind of either get fouled at the rim or drive and kick and how much the bucks potentially overreact to his penetration and allow him to set up open threes and whether you know they help off of the right guys you know as whether it's crowder who shot it better but it's still crowder who's been inconsistent over the last few years uh and iguodala or whether they're leaving hero or duncan robinson or Dragic. i think the way that they defend butler if they can maybe change up a little bit don't overhelp on him just make him finish over any kind of a contest at the rim without fouling is going to be huge yeah and whether they can make butler kind of more more of a functionary piece but not a not an inflection point in miami's offense will be really important and i agree with you i think that they i think that the bucks can both due to their personnel and due to their help capacities i think that that will be an interesting test and i'm also when we're talking about miami's offense personnel is another important part of that story you know like we saw iguodala be an important part of some of those miami closing lineups in the series against indiana which was a mcmillan sweep meaning a close series that the the losing team never won a game and Iguodala become I think that he will be more limited in like his limitations will be more exposed in the series just because Milwaukee has dramatically better defensive talent but the to me the biggest question we haven't talked as much about yet you you got to it a little bit with how they defend the the handoff game is how malleable is Budenholzer and how malleable is his system like is he going to stay more rigid with their approach they went away from some of that stuff in the Orlando series after the Magic won game one even within the game one and Miami doesn't bend it the same way but they do kind of similarly and so I'm very interested does that mean more Giannis at center does that mean shifting the matchups around and conceding like for example one of the ways they could handle this is in those clutch lineups putting Rob putting Brooke Lopez on Iguodala doing something incidentally that the Warriors did eons ago with Andrew Bogut and Tony Allen and basically saying hey we're 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 gonna we're gonna let him shoot those jump shots we don't really care he's gonna be reluctant he's gonna record scratch he's gonna get into mistakes and then we won't sacrifice our overall defense and then maybe that forces Spo if it doesn't work to go to different personnel yeah now Iguodala has a lot of experience being guarded that way and you know so he can if he's not guarded he can make the right pass immediately uh he can go find someone to quickly screen yeah. for and get him open you Iguodala, know like he, hero and robinson screens could end up being a, an important swing part in late games yeah absolutely and you know you mentioned the different lineups like Giannis and Marvin Williams would they go to a more mobile group would they try to do a little bit of switching which I think you know I I don't know that Miami has those individual guys who can really beat that and they can put some lineups out there you know let's say Bledsoe Matthews Middleton Giannis and Marvin Williams like that would be a pretty good switching group the Bucks haven't really tried that much at all but maybe that's a way to take away Duncan Robinson and you know maybe Bam Adebayo will try to like go back to goal and back you down but they've got guys who can help uh, on those plays you know I do uh, I think Adebayo isn't necessarily gonna have the greatest offensive series in the world due to the Bucks size you know he doesn't necessarily have an advantage against their base defense um so yeah i do want to see if milwaukee is forced into doing some different things and how successful potentially those are but uh I, I do expect that Miami is going to have difficulty scoring in this series, particularly if Duncan Robinson can't get going. Uh, you know, I don't think Butler has a huge advantage in this series, and 
you know, like Jimmy Butler from three years ago, I actually think might have been able to do pretty decently in this series because he had more of an ISO game, more of a jab step game. I think he had the size advantage of Middleton. He actually killed Chris Middleton back way back in 2015 when they matched up in the playoffs when Butler was playing for the Bulls. But Butler is not that same player anymore. In particular, uh, he just will not shoot a jump shot unless it's at absolute desperation. And so, yeah, Miami, like, what do you have if the really juicy stuff isn't working to create something in the mid-range is that Dragic who lose look great but this is a massive step up in competition for what he was playing against in the first round um and then the question becomes what is going to happen on Miami's defensive end they switched a ton against the Pacers it worked great their defense in the bubble has looked awesome do you think that switching will work against this Bucks team no I don't I, I think that especially when the heat defenders can do well against let's call them Pacers level of offensive players Giannis is not a Pacers level of offensive player he is a different kind of force he is our both of our pick for MVP not only because of his offense but I mean we both picked him as defensive player of the year but he's such a physical force that I think that you you have to be more matchup dependent there and so a big thing that I'm going to be watching in this series that relates to this is Miami over the course of the regular season did a really good job preventing shots at the rim we've talked about the historic nature of Milwaukee's defense there but Miami they were fourth in the league they did a really good job however when those shots went up Miami was actually they were actually 26th in the league the opponents made 66% of their shots at the rim and some of that was you know containment and they also had capable rim protection I wonder if some of those fail safes are going to fail in this series particularly if it ends up being and I think this is going to be the case that the best and maybe only person on Miami that can competently defend Giannis is Bam because if Bam is involved in that action think about what that does to the rest of the defense so in some of the regular season games it was actually Butler or Derek Jones Jr. Mm -hmm. getting time uh on Giannis now you've mentioned before and I agree with you that Bam is not ridiculous in terms of his instincts as a help defender I think at the end of games particularly you know he is their best hope on Giannis and I think he can do a pretty good job on Giannis in the half court and we've talked to many a time including recently in the Magic series about the Bucks limitations in the half court and I think that could be a problem uh now if they do go to the switching how much are the Bucks willing to break it off and have Chris Middleton try to attack Dragic or Robinson or Hero in an ISO I think that Chris Middleton could be very effective in the mid-range against any of those three guys if they can get that matchup more so really than anyone that the Pacers had uh just using his size and just kind of ball racking those guys um Robinson might actually be the best of those guys against him just because he's got more size even though you know because Middleton's not necessarily going to beat you with quickness and get all the way to the rim and obviously keeping the Bucks out of transition is huge avoiding missed layups and turnovers for Miami on their offensive end to allow the Bucks get into transition is huge and you know I still I don't think the Bucks even if Miami goes to a more conventional style I mean this is a I mean think of some of the lineups they can put out there with Crowder and Iguodala and Butler and Bam I mean they could put all four of those guys out there at times if they wanted to and I think that could really cause problems for the Bucks. <laughs> those guys are also really good help defenders and I think Giannis for all of his brilliance still just isn't quite quick enough and we saw it last year in the Raptors series with you know guys will come in and surprise him from behind like he just doesn't have a perfect understanding of where the help is coming from and who's open and then I also don't think I think that the Bucks a lot of times just don't do a good enough job of spacing the floor you'll just have some guard hanging around on the baseline like trying to get an offensive rebound as Giannis is trying to drive and like they got it they got to cut that shit out 
They do, and I'm also very concerned that going back to our criticisms of Milwaukee's offseason a lifetime and a half ago, that this becomes an important Eric Bledsoe offensive series, and that yeah. is that that has to give Bucks fans cold sweats. It has to give Budenholzer cold sweats tonight because they just well because they need him defensively. This yes. Year. And they, because there will be times when Miami's kind of their weak point could potentially be point of attack guards. Like they can, they can have some issues there. We saw Brogdon have some real advantages in the, in the Pacers series and Bledsoe has had moments absolutely over the last couple of years, but he hasn't been consistent in those high pressure moments. We saw it in the Celtic series a little while back at various moments in time. And Middleton has more viability in the series than he would in some other ones, just depending on what personnel Miami has on the floor, of course, Giannis and all that. But Bledsoe being able to attack when he has the advantage. And I'm also very interested to see how often Brooke Lopez goes in the post. Those are kind of like the two, the two advantages that Milwaukee has that I'm not sure how often they're going to be Bledsoe's case, be able to push that button and, and, Lopez's case, how often they actually are going to. Yeah, you know, and who ends up closing games for Milwaukee? Is it going to be George Hill or Bledsoe or both? And what's Wes Matthews' role going to be? Can they get away with playing Corver a little bit to get some more shooting on the floor in some of their bench units? And then the, the number of minutes as well, like, are they this is going to be a real series for Milwaukee like none of this like 31 minutes a game bullshit from Giannis anymore like he's gonna have to go 40 minutes at least in this series for them to get to the level that they need to be um you know I don't think that Miami is capable of blowing the Bucks out I don't think they can score well enough I think the Bucks you know if Miami's not hitting threes I think the Bucks could just completely throttle them um a few metrics I'm gonna be looking at very closely is Giannis able to hit the mid-ranger at all and his free throw shooting could be huge at the end of games and then for Miami how many three-point attempts does Duncan Robinson get per game does he get five or does he get ten that's gonna just be a massive metric to me that'll be a pretty good harbinger of how the Bucks uh, are playing them and then who's Giannis gonna guard are they gonna put him on Jimmy Baller I would actually actually consider that because Butler is a guy who doesn't need to be guarded when he doesn't have the ball and Giannis can really wreak havoc as a help defender there but if they put Butler in pick and roll and you know maybe Giannis getting over the screen that's not that amazing but you know maybe you just truck trust your base pick and roll defense also Butler could maybe get some fouls uh, on Giannis which he's always susceptible to foul trouble so are they gonna but then Middleton you know maybe he doesn't quite have the size for Butler do do they want to go with Wes Matthews on Butler but then you're you got to put some smaller on Dragic a lot of interesting decisions for who to put on who for the Bucks defense in addition to what their personality should be and how much they're going to change up that base protect the rim at all cost defense yeah and you, fascinating series fa- this, this series fascinating series and i'm also interested in some of the young guards that both of these teams have how how do they fare you know tyler hero dante divincenzo like some of the they're players that are not necessarily essential to play huge minutes but if they can do well become huge value adds like i'm very interested in how like spo plays let's say hero versus crowder versus iguodal like how all their minutes work out and the same with divincenzo and some of the bucks other options and i'm not sure and as part of what I what I enjoy so much about the series and why I think both of us are going to be watching it closely and very excited about it is that this is a crucible for a lot of these different players that we haven't really seen them in before. Yeah, I mean, and, and Brooke Lopez, you know, is he going to be Milwaukee's 
second best offensive player are they going to post him up more than they did last year he abs- i mean he could completely destroy kelly Olynyk in the post they've the heat have gone with you know Derek jones jr at center on, on their second unit sometimes so if lopez is out there without Giannis, i'm not sure that's necessarily going to work that well lopez could really mash down there and of course is lopez going to hit better than 29 percent from three i mean he's been taking like some real bad shots like on the move you know maybe he can try to have a little bit better a shot selection there um you know are the bucks going to run pick and roll more um how do they deal with the switching if it happens i'm fascinated absolutely fascinated to see that and uh should be an awesome series let's hit some news before oh we got to get picks actually first before we do that i'm gonna go bucks and six i think that miami poses some specific challenges we're gonna see how as i said how malleable Budenholzer and his system are and i wouldn't be stunned if this series goes seven i would be surprised but not shocked if miami won it outright i think that milwaukee is a more talented team but i think the heat could give them all sorts of problems like we could be sitting here after two games especially with this all being neutral site and say oh god like milwaukee's in some real danger here but i still think bucks and six i'm torn between bucks and five and bucks and six it's yeah you don't want to overrate the regular season but this bucks team is really 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 good and i don't miami yeah they've got some structural advantages in terms of how many threes they take but ultimately like they don't have enough good players to to me to score efficiently against this bucks team i think it would really and i think it would take spo really out coaching budenholzer which could happen for miami to be super competitive in this series and I mean, I think the Bucks defense is just too good. This is an awesome defense. Just if you're not getting to the rim and you're not getting that many free throws, even if you have the three-point shooting, it is pretty difficult. And yeah, they have Duncan Robinson, but they don't have, you know, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant, you know, where it's really like, man, you just have to change everything up you know they kind of they've got one or two guys and you can deal with those guys and those guys also don't have the versatility to do many other things um you know miami is not like a great mid-range scoring team which you need some of uh, against the bucks like hero is really your only guy that is a huge threat from there and i mean you really if you're gonna say this is gonna be an extremely competitive series you gotta say the bucks are gonna be a lot worse than they were in the regular season and miami is a lot better and yet there's some reasons to think that both those things could be true and miami in particular the way they've looked defensively in the bubble has been impressive but i don't put a lot of stock in them beating the pacers the way they did i do agree it's an interesting matchup but i don't think they have enough talent in the end so i guess i never made my pick i'm gonna go bucks and five All right, that will do it for today. Thanks so much. Please sign up at dunkedon.supportingcast.fm. We got about a week left or so uh, to get that special pricing. We'll talk to you all on Sunday. Don't forget about the NBA cast as well. That'll be at 3.30 Eastern, 12.30 Pacific for game six of Clippers and Dallas. And we might be so excited that we even start that at the end of Boston, Toronto, if it's close. Talk to you all then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.